Hello and welcome to Royale Without Cheese, our bi-weekly podcast in which we discuss both the classic and the unknown of art and popular cinema from the then and now. We are your hosts, me, Tomás Ferreira, and Leonardo Miranda. Hello. Today we talk about The Exorcist, but before any ados, don't forget to subscribe, leave a comment, or simply give us a like. The Exorcist is a 1973 American horror film directed by William Friedkin from a screenplay by William Peter Blatty based on his 1971 novel of the same name. The film stars Ellen Burstein, Max von Sydow, Jason Miller and Linda Blair and follows the demonic possession of a young girl and her mother's attempt to rescue her through an exorcism. At the time reviews were mixed, audiences famously suffered shocks on their way out of the theaters and several cities tried to ban it. Fast forward to 2023, the movie celebrates 50 years, but does it still hold up? Royale Without Cheese has come to confess. It's just a film, people. We have to faint. No need to faint, no need to vomit, no need to have a heart attack. But (laughs) to the movie's credit, it is very, very good. And well, what is the hidden secret, Leo? What is the hidden secret to The Exorcist? The Exorcist, I would say, Mm -hmm. freaking style, the sort of realistic approach. Or, you know, he he calls it almost a documentary like type of filmmaking it's very on the ground very objective there's not a lot of especially in the quieter scenes there's not a lot of you know dutch angle there's no as far as i noticed there's no like dutch angles there's no hyper stylization of the image in a in the in the way that we think when it comes to a lot of horror films it mainly comes from the light and it mainly comes from in the more heightened scenes with with reagan 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 um, <laughs> Reagan, you know, yeah, Reagan, <laughs> Ronald Reagan. Reagan. <laughs> I imagine Reagan. Ronald Reagan appear from the bed. Huh? I mean, huh? <laughs> uh, but yeah, but it mainly comes from you know being confronted very directly with this supernatural event that is treated as almost as fact by by the end, especially mm-hmm. in how you. I mean, you see her eyes glow, you see her vomit, you see the scars in her in her body, you see her voice change. I think that's where a lot of the power of the film comes, is how it treats this and films this as though it's just matter of fact. I think that's what a lot of people at the time react to exactly. so violently. Exactly. Yeah, I totally agree, totally agree. One of, the, one of the points that I wrote about this film was uh, particularly its documentary approach especially at the opening sequence, which uh, one of the most amazing opening sequences I've ever seen for... Um, you see, I've already adopted my Friedkin approach. <laughs> one of the best sequences that I've ever seen. You know, He asks this kind of thing with his hands when he's explaining. But uh, yeah, like one of the best opening sequences to a horror film that I've ever seen. And to me, that hidden secret, that hidden quality about The Exorcist and why, in my opinion, watching the film now being my second time, in the year that it's celebrating 50 years, by the way, um, I've noticed it. I noticed so much more in the film, and I think that yes, it is that balance between the supernatural and the realism. There is a groundedness throughout the film. You know, it just screams the the movie's intention in wanting to invite the audience rather to an atmosphere, well, to an atmosphere rather than leading the audience. You know, yeah. uh, r- rather than uh, trying to tell the audience exactly what to see, how to feel, you know, because it's a very languid pace. And in such a way, it surprises you. When I was watching the film for the very first time, 
I was expecting to jump right into the exorcism, you see, right into the scene. And somehow my mind had this perspective, you know, this famous film that I knew for years. Uh, it, my mind was expecting that the film would be all of it, the exorcism, you know, <laughs> inside a little girl's room. Because that's all the images that you see, you know, the famous images are her with the scarred face, you know, zombie-like look to her. So it, somehow you expect the movie to be all gore and frights, but it isn't. He keeps that away for the later half of the films, particularly the end, the climatic ending. And for the most part, it is this balancing act between two narrative strands. Reagan's mother, Chris, trying to save her, her daughter, uh, consulting the doctors, even going on campus to later on find Father Damien, who has some expertise or, or she might sympathize with because he seems a bit skeptical, but at the same time, he's a priest. He may have the skills to do this, to save my, my daughter. Um, and then, you know, the strand of Father Damien himself. And I think that it is very interesting how in this language pace, what, what does the film actually want? What does the film actually intend from really accompanying the lives of these two people for so long until the supernatural elements start kicking in? What, what does it pretend, you know, kind of in the first viewing of the film, it, this, this doesn't hit you very much. But on the second watch, first off, there's a great opening scene in, the, in North Iraq with Father Marin finding the totem of the devil Pazuzu, which is a devil from ancient... Mm -hmm. Mesopotamian times. Uh, he's like the, he represents us the southern western wind. And he, he can be both be a force for destructive means or can kind of safekeeping. And it is interesting that clash between old civilization and the new modern times. And that's the key for the, you know, the, the fear in the film, the, the power of, of um, eerie, the eeriness in the film. Because, you know, you're seeing all these, all this human power, the picarettes, the hammers bursting, the, bursting and unraveling the earth to discover these, these statues with evil power. It seems like you're trying to find something that you shouldn't find in the first place. And then you kind of fade out from this ancient, hot, devilish land to the modern kind of a modern city. And you feel that uh, that's, that same spirit is creeping in, which mm -hmm. is very much worked or explored through Friedkin through the means of sound of the picarettes and, and the pendulum of the clock. And so you are introduced to these two strands of narrative, Father Damien and Chris, mother to, to Reagan. And I think it's interesting how the supernatural creeps in into the story and how the mother tries to uh, intervene with that. The supernatural, what happens to Reagan is clearly to me, uh, him exploring the question of maturity. Because essentially how Reagan and her mother are presented in the first part of the story, in the first act, are these mother and daughter who have a very strong bond, right? Very strong bond. And they do things who are kind of far into, into the land, into the forgotten land of prepubescent <laughs> land, where, you know, the mother and daughter run around the house, they get physical together. There's always kisses. There's these, these dialogues. They're all like cutesy pie, lovable innocence, uh, you know what I'm going to do tomorrow? What? I'm going to take to the movies. We're going to have a picnic. Uh, oh, I love you, Rex. You know, I love you, mother. <laughs> There's this cutesy pie quality that lives in an idyllic land of parent and child uh, kind of bond or relationship that William Friedkin is very aware about and wants to kind of challenge through the supernatural happening, which is actually adolescence with mood swings and, um, you know, body changes, sexual awakening. But of course, being a supernatural phenomenon to uh, a heightened level, 
right, uh, to an over-the-top level and, of course, magical level, being a demon inside her. But it's very much what happens because she turns into this foul-mouthed, perverted version of herself, like a very angry, angsty adolescent who can't, can't stop from herself. Um, and it's interesting how visually that is also portrayed because the mother tries to make Reagan go to the doctor and the first trip to the doctor is very contained. He films the film in, in large tones in a very stark lighting, uh, contained colors of blues and browns, kind of autumn to winter. And uh, mainly two shots, three shots, fixed shots that if in the house, if inside the family home, they are white shots mainly. So they reveal a lot of the kind of magnitude of the house. So you might be close to three characters, but you're always feeling kind of the size, the dimension of the place. You can feel that any breath of wind can enter through any division. And that's scary to the group because the wind has a great presence in this film. In fact, the very demon that possesses it represents kind of an evil wind. And that's one of the first shots you see of being inside this house. When you see uh, Regan's mother kind of looking for the sound in the attic, she goes to her uh, daughter's bedroom and the window is open. The very window that delivers the final blow to the hero priest, Damien, yeah. in the end. So that's where the evil comes in, the outsider kind of agent that takes in possession of Regan. But when she's in the first trip at the doctor, those shots are very similar, fixed, two shots, kind of documentary, as you would uh, phrase it, you know, you have a doctor, you have the patient, all this machinery around her. But then, a point of view of a nurse in handheld uh, capacity, following Reagan as she's humming around, looking at the ceiling lost. And there's a freedom at that moment. You feel there's a, a breath it comes in and the tone change, it shifts. So she's starting to act differently and then comes a slurring, etc. cetera. Uh, this was very uh, interesting to me, very gripping to me how he built this tone over the film and he wasn't afraid to not go immediately to the gory parts or the frightening parts. All the while, what is Father Damien? Why are we following him? It's because Father Damien, we're following his routines as much as we are following the routines at first of this mother and daughter, right? So there is a domestic quality to the film. We are invited to the American family home and evil is invited there. That's what's creepy about it, is that this evil from a nation time, buried deep, comes into the lives, into our daily lives, of the, that are routine, normal, you know, plain as anything can be. And then suddenly something unexpected happens. Death is also that something that is very unexpected. And I think that Damien narrative arc is the thing that keeps the supernatural arc of Reagan, although everything in it can be traced back to every symbolism in it can be traced back to the question of maturity, maturity and adolescence. Damien's narrative is far more just realistic. He's just a guy dealing with his own problems of faith mm -hmm. and doubting himself. He's a psychiatrist as well. He kind of deals with his patients, despair, and tries to find an answer to everything, but he can't. So that feeds into his despair. Can I help? Is there a God? I think one of the most beautiful kind of transitions there is in the film is that we find him after one of the trips to the doctor, I think, of Reagan. We find him at the pub, kind of picking these drinks up, going to his father friend, give, giving the drinks. Like, why is a priest on a in a bar <laughs> it's strange <laughs> you know it sets him up always in this weird location on surrounding environment he's not your normal priest you know you rarely see him giving mass and when he gives mass he always seems to have a, a worry worryful expression in his mm -hmm. face 
And he also has his own ailing mother. You know, you see him, you go into his house inside his home. His ailing mother is starting to decay. He didn't, she didn't become forget, forgetful. She's evidently mentally, mentally going away. So when suddenly she goes to the this insane asylum, the POV shots of him looking to the mental patients in the asylum are something that is so gripping because you see these people kind of talking to nothing, contacting with nothing, just in their own hands. It really marries the the supernatural in the film with the psychosis, uh, you know, of uh, with the psyche of human beings. Uh, you know, the the realm of the real with the realm of the of the fantasy coming together, which is which. And also, there's a third theme. There's also another thing here, because right after this thing of his mother being taken away from him to this insane asylum, a scene where we see that he's not capable for many reasons of uh, supporting her, even if he, he wanted to, and then he feels guilty about it. What, what we find out is that um, there's this question of social class in the film as well. When we have in the following scene this huge lavish party uh, that is, uh, you know, given by this actress, which is uh, Reagan's mother, uh, it really shows kind of a different lifestyle. And so the, he, and it's a very intentional thing from Friedkin because he has more than one scene where he wants to underline the fact that this is a rich home. Meg, Reagan's home, Chris's home, her mother is a rich home. She's an actress. She shows a, a scene where she's doing a movie at the college where, you know, he works at Father Damien. She, she's there playing a scene. Then you have the party at the house. She can make come in this whole slew of 18 doctors to try and help uh, her daughter far more than the average American can do, who is afraid of going to the hospital. And so it's really a commentary on while this guy who really wants to help his mother can't, what happens with this mother who can do anything? Then comes the question of, ah, now Friedkin plays at the panic that the audiences have, that the audience can have of what if you had all the money in the world? Well, of course, you could read anybody of any disease, of course. But in this case, there's a sort of despair to that question and the answer. No, you can't because you can't read yourself from the devil, at least, you know, in this context of the demon in this scenario. Right. So that is frightful. What happens when medicine and science cannot help you? You know, so that's a big thing into the film as well but enough of my app and what do you think of all of this we kind of discussed you know the groundness in the film the <laughs> the visual style but also this question of social class so did you see anything of this as well uh, let me start with the social class i didn't feel so much the you know the class consciousness of it all i didn't feel i mean it's there but i didn't feel it as much as a point as maybe you did what spoke to me more was the you know he's taking like for example the scene of the film that she's filming it's her talking to a bunch of student protesters and the whole spiel she gives about, no, change comes from within the system and all that. I think he's taking those anxieties that a lot of, a lot of people, especially from the more establishment type of thing that I think Friedkin sort of puts himself against in a lot of, mm -hmm. a lot of new Hollywood directors were hippies, let's say, not hippies necessarily, but, you know, were of those, uh, they had that sort of, Consciousness, consciousness. anti-war. Uh, anti yeah, exactly. So I think the film is sort of taking some of those anxieties uh, regarding sexual liberation or whatever and, and applying that to anxieties that people have towards women, especially younger women, developing into, you know, their own beings. And I think 
that's essentially what uh, Regan serves as, as this symbol of, of this fear that people have of... The, womanhood. <laughs> of womanhood, yeah, exactly. When you put uh, it plainly. Into, like it's literally the devil. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Turning her into this foul-mouthed, vulgar being. And she saved... I mean, this now is not even just my reading. This is a reading... That's probably the most popular, at least the most debated reading of the film, which is she's saved by essentially like the patriarchy, by these patriarchal figures, the priest, mm -hmm. these two men mm -hmm. who slap the shit out of her until she is no longer <laughs> the devil. Uh, yeah. You know, and there's even the sacrifice of the man for the greater good of the woman. Yeah. Of course, like these are readings a bit more... They're not necessarily the be-all and all of the film, but it's yeah. fun to to think about. Uh -huh. But yeah, I think I, I saw it more from that lens. But also, as being the first time I was watching the film, I was very impressed with the with the structure and the rhythm. The film is very there's like a tone of, uh, as you said, you said languid. It's like very there's a slow pace to it all, and then a lot of these moments are abruptly interrupted by by moments of intensity and even vulgarity, sort of a, a good counterpoint between it all. And sort of, it's a rhythm that became maybe a little very established in the in the horror uh, genre. This, you know, you have the quiet mm -hmm, moments mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm. they're interrupted by great violence. But I think here it's very well done. It's super yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. hypnotizing. Because it hasn't crystallized yet, I think. It mm -hmm. hasn't become a formulaic thing where, you know... Yeah, and it's not it, the formula per se. It's just yeah, he's exploring exactly. the characters and he's exactly, showing you exactly. their development. It's different than from other horror films where it's like in the quiet scenes, nothing is done. It's just nothing. It's just people looking around. Whoa, we're we're having fun, man. Nothing can go <laughs> yeah. wrong. It, it's it's people being people, you know. It's allowing people yeah. being people, let's let's say. So, so then when the horror comes... Uh, it, it you it really gets at you because, like said, you know the visual throughout most of the film is that stark lighting, those fixed shots, a, a handheld shot here and there in the, in the more intense uh, moments, especially at the doctors. But I think there's a lot of uh, an eeriness that comes from the realism of the scenes, things that you can find in our real world. No bullshit. I mean, for example, the, the very you know trips to the doctor, which escalate further and further into this you know clinical discussions of what she might have really playing to the panic of uh, the fear of not being able to save a dear one's life and what he or she may have being a disease that is unknown or incurable. And, and not just that, it's also the fact that what if you are more afraid of the cure than of the disease as well, because <laughs> it really taps into kind of that fear of the hospital machinery yeah. that he puts around Reagan because the shots become, you know, he plays a lot with long lenses and these tight shots around, which are... Of more often than not, you know, high angle shots of her in that hospital bed yeah. with the machinery around him. That this very famous shot of the needle prick into yeah. her neck, squirting blood that got, you know, very strong reactions from the audience at the time. Because it's very real. This could happen to you. This is not unfamiliar to me. And then there's a, a big play with the sound as well of the machinery going, you know, that rhythmic thumping, which is rhymes visually and orally with what we, well, what we heard in the beginning at Max von Sydow, a rec site excavation and so yeah it really taps into that into that fear uh, and um mm -hmm. it's just I, that i think i think nothing the, else is happening yeah. yeah the scene in the doctor that you're mentioning yeah a lot of 
it's one of the scenes that most a lot of people mention as being like terrifying because the way it's framed and because it's so scientifically like accurate i assume i think it's a, it's a, a very important scene to make the rest of the film feel even more the despair yeah the despair it's like it's a very important scene in the sense that it shows you what would be the the logical and the scientific uh, solution which is to put her through these tests and, and, the, and you see how even that is extremely painful so you're like okay maybe an exorcism makes more sense you know <laughs> maybe it's what's yeah. warranted here and also because even the way there's to an ambiguity the exorcism yeah. you see like the doctors say <laughs> the way the doctors frame it is like have you thought of exorcism and they have tried everything and it's the last yeah. thing to suggest and even then they say they think it works, but it functions as a shock treatment, you know? <laughs> exactly. Like, it's everything is framed from that perspective. Yeah. So it makes even more, oh, okay, I understand why they are suggesting. This yeah, makes yeah. It doesn't come as unrealistic. Yeah, yeah no, I mean. it makes, exactly. But but the thing is, at least for me, watching the film, and maybe it's because the film is so popular already, we already know what's the deal, like, by the end, because these images are all so popular. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, from the beginning, it's sort of pretty unambiguous that it's the devil like it's not gonna be cured by medicine it's the devil you need an exorcism here i think the like the the intro as you mentioned with max contributes a great deal to making that feeling immediate of this Mm -hmm. is something Mm -hmm. greater than uh, than science let's say but even like the sounds she hears in the attic the way like the flame when she's with um with the candle the way it lights up i think there like there's moments where i think there's a moment where you see like her eyes like reagan's eyes um turn white and it's before they even like get to the the point of the the exorcism so you're like okay this is clearly something beyond like the, the natural but again but i do also see like he he leaves enough ambiguity to make it you always doubt yourself a little bit like you I felt uh, I felt that a little bit that from the get go, it's a little more showing like these science people just completely out of their element, completely mm-hmm. out of the they they don't have the answers and like and also cutting back to to Father Karas Damien to me also communicates that because it's like here's a man you know dealing with his lack of faith and here's a a young girl being possessed by a demon like. It's a, a psych, it's almost like a sadistic way to confirm your belief is that, yeah, God exists because here's the devil, here's a woman possessed by the devil. And so I felt like mm-hmm. those two strands uh, also are always communicating with each other. And you start to feel that for Damien. It's like, no, man, you, you can have your beliefs. <laughs> you can believe God again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, again, yeah, but it's a, a bleak much... film in that sense as well. Yeah, there's very much that sense of redemption, you know, his arc is an arc of redemption, I think, because you see him so oftenly consumed by alcohol and drinking and, you know, the lack of money, so the, the, you know, and there's something to his past that seems unrevealed, some hurt, some trauma, I don't know what, but he seems he's carrying something that the film doesn't quite, ex- well, reveal or explore, I don't think it needs to, I'm not saying that, mm-hmm. but it makes interesting that there's almost a story for a spin-off, which I don't need. Okay, <laughs> don't have any ideas, anybody out there. <laughs> there's a bunch but, of you know, sequels. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
except of him. <laughs> but he he's an interesting character because of that mystery to him. I mean, what mm -hmm. happened to him in his life? How did he end up here? I feel like he has traveled the world or the U.S. to come to this place, to come to this church. And there's the he carries the gravitas behind his eyes. Uh, and so you really want some kind of redemption for him. You really want that thing of, yes, you can believe again. <laughs> <laughs> kind of attitude because of here's a mission for you, you know. Um, yeah, so so there's that, how should I put it, that reward feeling at the end of even when he dies, he dies accomplishing something or, or you know, salvaging his soul, you know, in, within the language of the, of the film and mm -hmm. Christianhood. What about yeah. the, the opening? Do you want to comment on it? Because I think the opening is like, it could be a short film on its own, very much so. I mean, so. the opening, I, was, beautiful I found opening. it very strange because mm -hmm. I had no idea it started that way and the even like I assume because I first started watching the director's cut I didn't I mean I didn't intentionally though I just I downloaded a version yeah. legally <laughs> uh, and I started watching it and I was ah this is the director's version maybe that's why it starts this way with this strange scene that uh, you know seems like more a prelude uh, so then I started watching the normal version I was like oh, okay no it starts the same way yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's intentional because yeah, it genuinely feeling. feels out of place when you when you first encounter true, true. the film. Because when I first watched, it was the same feeling. Indeed, you know, it's sunlight. It's like there's a lot of light <laughs> immediately. So yeah. it's not even visually speaking. It seems like a different film, but it yeah. makes sense. It, it's actually it's very important. And again, and Friedkin said that that a lot of people. I think even Blady himself, the writer, was like, maybe it's not a necessary scene. Maybe we can cut it off and get straight to to the action, quote unquote. But he's like, but it's uh, Friedkin says it's no. It's very important in establishing not only the mythology behind the film, and to, that is not super explained, but it's important to suggest. Yeah, and also the moods, like the uncertain mood of the film, and I think yeah, yeah he's right in how you know, in different places in, in the world can be haunted by the same devil, let's say. Yeah, I mean, that's that's an amazing idea. That's a very powerful uh, idea. And he, you know, masterfully expresses it. This is an example, this opening scene of great directing, you know, and great thinking behind how he wants the language of the film to function in an overall. And the thing is, like you said, on the other side of the world, there lives the same devil rising up again, you know. And the the opening of this sequence is like this is like this Arab chanting, Allah, you know, over over the, the film's title. And it's it's so the word is displacement, you know. It's uh, I don't I want you know I won't say alien <laughs> like in a xenophobic <laughs> way. That's not what I mean. I say alien in the sense that you're not expecting, you know, <laughs> you know, alien in the sense that you look at the answer and say, what 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 is this yeah, sound exactly. I'm hearing? You're not, you're not, you're not waiting for, uh, even because, you know, it's a very Catholic, uh, yeah, true kind of culture mythology going on in here. The exorcism, you expect Catholic priests and then suddenly the Arab chanting, you know, Muslim religion. So, okay. And you, you hear this beautiful score just before that chant opens in. And when it hits, it's like this spiritual call to the heavenly, you know, the spiritual, uh, other side, the afterlife, and you open with the sun in black and white. So the fight between good and evil kind of paints up the screen from the beginning, and then slowly descends into these colors of orange and red. It's hell. It's hot. You open in the hottest of places possible, 
and you feel it, you feel the sweat in Max von Sydow's faces. Once again, you know, these picarette sounds, these sweeping, you know, tracking shots over the excavation site until this little boy finds our main priest, Marin, and he unveils the totem that is the statue of Pazuzu, the demon, that is going to, you know, wreak havoc in Regan's life. And you see the hand, you know, this hand of the priest's hand going into this hole, the sound of wind in there kind of distorted. Uh, you have this, what was it? There was another sound once he reveals the statue inside the stone, which is, uh, I think it's a wasp stance. There's something akin to that. Nature and the, the mystery of nature is always embedded in the soundscape of this film. When he unveils that statue of Pazuzu inside the stone, you hear that wasp's nest, you know, it's kind of this distorted sound. Or later on, you know, after the picarets come in different tonalities, you know, he goes into the city, he talks a little bit with another expert, you know, about, you know, good and evil, there seems to be something there. And there's this continuous sound external to him, but it's really externalizing his internal kind of uh, mental state, which is this kind of haunting, you know, that he has of finding this hidden, below-the-earth kind of magical entity, you know, this demon. Because all these sounds of the hammers in the streets from the blacksmiths, you know, the, the woodsmen, end up in that one pendulum in that office that then, click, stops. So there seems to be all of a sudden, without anybody saying anything, not even the main priest, he could have been saying some cliche line that could end up in a trailer like, it's now, the <laughs> evil is here. And like, I'm glad that nothing of that happened. In in an average movie, run-of-the-mill horror film mm -hmm. of today, yeah. that thing would happen. He would say a dramatic line. But no, it's a pendulum. It's something has normal and banal, has, you know, uh, a piece of furniture in a living room mm -hmm. that tells you that the balance, the natural balance of uh, the universe is off now. And he goes click and stops. And he goes back to the excavation site. He sees the, that big statue of the demon himself, which in itself is alluring to maturity and the changes that come into it by the big phallus that he has <laughs> on the statue. <laughs> and once again, the sound. So you have the, wasp, the wasp's nest and then you have those rabid dogs fighting off in the desert and then mixing with the statue itself and the sun behind it, casting a big shadow in Von Sido's face. The wind, the way it's framed, this big white shot of, of the statue in Max Von Sido in that hill. It's so, you know, he might fall from there. Something might happen, you know, will there be death? It's very poignant. It's very powerful without very little being said throughout that opening scene. So, uh, and he really connects that sense of the mythology of the film it's suggestive, nobody says anything in the sense that why this demon? Why this demon and why that girl on the other side of the world? It's scary precisely because on the other side of the world, North Iraq, you have this demon being risen from the earth. And for some reason, in America, this girl gets it. This girl gets the same demon. Uh, it's scary because of that, you know, the, the, the yeah, idea is something that random, so far away. Just yeah, shows that's her. what they say. That's it. Yeah. Why this girl? And then Max von Sydow says, I think it's to cause us despair. You know, exactly that. You know, and uh, yeah, I think that line is good to be in there as a, a final kind of full stop to uh, clear the ambiguity, but it it's not super self-explanatory. It delivers to, to clear up the audience some kind of, you know, 
final blow to the expectations, satisfying it to, to why the reason, if any reason, for this demon being attacking Reagan. But it doesn't go on into a, like a full-on monologue or whatever, yeah, which would yeah. be the case. It's not because when she was films. a child, she killed <laughs> yeah, a squirrel yeah. that was actually no, 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 possessed no. by, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, something stupid. It's just, you know, I think that's the, the strength also of the film. It leaves enough that you can construct... Uh, like there's a world outside of the film. It's not, of course, the film itself, you see a lot of things, but you can also imagine there's so much more. And yeah, then there's the sequels, but, you know, they build upon that, I'm sure, but uh, you don't need them. I mean, uh, other things, maybe outside of the film that I find interesting is like the religious reaction to it in the 70s specifically, because there's there was sort of a divide. Some people thought it was completely unacceptable and blasphemous um, because it has a lot of blasphemous images, like uh -huh. the masturbation with the crucifix. Let Jesus fuck you! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let Jesus fuck you. But also, it's a film that, in terms of religious belief, it's a film that pretty much is siding with religious belief and saying, like, no, yeah, this is true. Like, because again, because of Friedkin's style, it sort of treats it as a as a fact. And so a lot of religious people were also like, no, no, this is, you know, it's saying that God exists because the devil exists. And the way to get rid of the devil is through the power of God. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know what they say about <laughs> Father Karas committing suicides to, you know, <laughs> yeah. to, to yeah, fulfill yeah, yeah. that. But, you know. And it's, uh, you know, even the end of the film is with um, his brother, I think, right? Looking at the stairs. Is, sort is of his, a, I don't think it's his brother. It's, it's uh, then it, who is he? He's a just a guy. He's just a friend. He's a, a, He's a, friend, a friend, you know. Uh, I thought, I, I thought it's, it's there was a very a interesting. He's a Father Dreyer. That's, that's the character's name. And he's a very interesting Dyer. shot. Dyer. Yeah, yeah, it's I think of Dreyer, the director. <laughs> yeah, but um, I thought I actually thought it was Dreyer because I thought it was like a kind of a nod to the to the other director for some reason, who also did a, a great horror called Vampire, yeah. but uh, or Vampire. But um, it is a very interesting shot by the end of the film with that father that can be missed, which is when after you know Father Damien's death, you know he delivers the final confession to him, and in the very next day, there's the wrapping of everything. To, you know, Reagan and her mother change for another home. And then he confronts by himself the stairs that led to his colleague dying and mm -hmm. no sound yeah. exists. It all comes to a halt. And it's just him looking at those stairs. Stairs, something who could, Nothing. you know, yeah. very normal, you know, but exactly. in that That's film, in that weight. moment, it's the weight is powerful. It seems like, wow, such an amazing shot. And the very window from which, you know, he fell behind in the background of this character. Yeah. You feel the menace of it. You feel that evil still prevails. And there's a sort of despair or pessimism in that shot of the stairs. Like, this may happen again. There might be another little girl, little man, little boy, who will be attacked. And without saying anything, which I think is very interesting. Yeah, and I also think in that moment as well, especially in the final moments of the film where the structure of the film with the pace of the, you know, the quiet followed by the the intense and the vulgar. You know, you you suddenly it comes to a, a moment of rest. He's walking, he's talking, he's saying goodbye to to the girl and to to her mother. Then he goes to the stairs. Because of the 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 pacing of the film, you almost feel like what is going to happen? Something horrible must happen now. Because mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. just the logic of the film, but it doesn't. It just ends. Yeah. And that's it. It's the suggestion of the evil lurking around still whatever place it chooses to go because you don't know 
if the devil dies, if you kill yourself when it possesses you, like there's <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but yeah. maybe it does, who knows? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what do you think of this other character in this, you know, assembly of characters who, who you know, he feels almost a little bit displaced, but it's a, the, the character of the detective played by, by the, Ali, the, this yeah. very charming actor. I don't remember his He's name. Great. He also appears in... B.J. Cobb. Okay, yes, he appears in uh, that Marlon Brando 12. film. Uh, um, no. On the waterfront, he's the oh, villain. Well, I know him from he's uh, very good. 12 Angry Men. Yes, as well, as well, he is there. And uh, he has a great power for anger. But in here, film, in this film, he doesn't display it. And uh, he's much more friendly. But he's kind of an oddball character, almost belonging strange, in a comedy. Yeah. He kind of appears <laughs> and pops in, always with the same request. Yeah. Do you want to go to the crest? I have two tickets to the movies. Like, <laughs> like what is this obsession uh, with this showing of a tello? With, yeah. uh, what does he say? I don't know. Groucho Marx as a, Groucho Marx as Otello and someone else's. I think yeah, Debbie Reynolds like as Desdemona. I don't even know what the fuck yeah, he's talking he's always, about. Yeah, he always comes funny. with another film suggestion. Always kind of uh, <laughs> an off-color request, like he's interrogating the mother, you know, Chris, about her daughter and the the, the murder of the director who kind of went out the window. And then it's like, ah. I want an autograph for my little girl. But I have to say, it's not for my little girl, it's me. You know, like, <laughs> I think, you know, maybe he keeps things light. I think in a yeah, very bleak I don't movie. know, yeah. I didn't... And there's a, a grounded, a, an everyday man groundedness yeah. to him, perhaps. Feels like, <clears throat> makes sense to have that... It's just a guy, you know. Yeah, it's just a he guy. He doesn't really... I don't know if he contributes to anything narratively yeah. that important, that, as far as I remember. He's kind of there as the... Connective tissue, I think. In a way, yeah. he functions as well as a connective tissue between the mother and Father Damien when they are apart in their separate Yeah, strands. exactly. Because once he starts entering, yeah. he's kind of a point to the tension of the film. He starts... He's the, he's the artist, you know, making questions and pulling them in to kind of bring them together in, in a sort of way. But yeah. <clears throat> now, just coming back around to a, another scene that I really enjoyed in the film, within that theme of, you know, maturity and the symbolism in the film towards that, that idea... Uh, is how uh, you have the party and then how the supernatural starts happening, this phenomenon, right? Uh, you have Reagan. It, first of all, you have this, this shot of Ellen by the piano with all her friends singing Sweet Home, mm -hmm. which is kind of very ironic, you know, Sweet Home, <laughs> you know, the, the lovable child, prepubescent, yeah. you know, <laughs> that, those things. No worries, you know, no tension between mother and daughter as of yet, you know, you know they all agree with it. With everything, there's, it's all kind of that idyllic place in the family, um, and then all of a sudden, you know, what can re what can wreak havoc in a party? But uh, a teenager appearing, appearing with uh, with you know um, a rant, a fit, you know, <laughs> but in the world, creating an, embar an embarrassing moment by being you know the floor all over, mm -hmm. and the the camera already lets you know that because the camera you know kind of tracks the piano, they start singing tracks away from the piano and you see, okay, now it's going to happen something. Now it's going to be the hit. And surely enough, you know, Reagan comes in and says the line, you know, you will die one day or you will die tomorrow or yeah. something like that. And the, the P, but it's all very natural. There's no kind of, the piano does not set, set fire to itself. It's just her peeing. And then progressively though, this phenomenon, these, appar these apparitions, these, you know, these supernatural events start getting, pushed further and further beyond that realm of realism into um, 
the magical grounds, like her going down the stairs in a spider-like way, blood pouring down, you know. And then in the way that it's filmed, I think that what I really like the film is that, not only in the way that it's filmed in the narrative, is that what I'm most interested in the film is the build-up. Is this progress, you know, is this lengthy construction of the various strands and how to express these ideas of how science may be not able to save you, what is the maturity in this film, these fears regarding maturity and womanhood, and what is, you know, this social class, how the social class, the idea of money, can play into it, you know, some people cannot even have medical assistance, some can, you know, 18 doctors, no one can help me, and then, you know, the, that, the frustration that comes from that, not being able to help a loved one. And then visually, this, this restraint that he has, right, throughout most of the film. So then when the exorcism happens, I, I think that's the thing I'm least interested in throughout the whole film. You know, <laughs> like, it's beautifully executed, of course. Yeah. Not saying anything otherwise. It's, it's a great sequence. And it's also where, where the uh, a sequence... I think the first moment where you... St- what I'm trying to say is that it's the first sequence where you start having more expressionistic camera movements with these kind of very dramatic shadows and um, low-key lighting with with low-angle kind of sharpening the shadows from below um, and uh, kind of low angles of the camera revealing the whole size and dimension of the room as well. And that really happens very early on, just before the exorcism scene with the psychiatrist coming into play. And psychiatry seems to be something that is almost put to to a side in a discrediting way, I think, from the doctors who who deal with, you know, other areas of of medicine. It's always like, "Mm, I wouldn't go so far as to psychiatry, you know, it's not complex, let's keep it simple. It's always, to that degree, it seems that psychiatry somehow, uh, I don't know if Friedkin is commenting at any level of discredit for psychiatry, even then in the 70s, but, uh, you know, you feel that kind of sort of, uh, those guys from psychiatry, let's not go there. And those riddles. But when a a psychiatrist comes into play, he's kind of the key into revealing that, you know, showing to the doctor, showing to the mother, you know, actually there's something happening here because he's the one who does the hypnosis in the room. And the hypnosis Mm -hmm. is the thing that reveals the demon inside her. Very clearly states, this is Reagan and this is the demon inside her. They they both are people or entities, different entities. And who, for the first time in the film, very clearly state that we're dealing with something out of our hands here uh, of another world so the psychiatry ended up being kind of a, a more important role that i would ever mm-hmm. I, I didn't think that he would she would ever you know go down that route but they really go everywhere in terms of <laughs> as far as medicine can go uh, just before to go into exorcism That's all for today, folks. If you'd like to reach out and suggest a film for the next episode, you can find us on the podcast official Instagram and Facebook pages. Feel free to subscribe, share this episode, or simply give us a like. That's how our podcast can grow ever more groovy. And if you are on YouTube and want to see more videos like this, check out this next video right here. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Happy exorcisms. Happy exorcisms.